on behalf of the Department of Political Science, Faculty of Social Science, Jamia Milia Islamia, I would like to warmly welcome His Excellency Ambassador Dr. Hassan Al-Talib and the entourage from the Diplomatic Corps uh, from the Embassy of Sudan in New Delhi. I would also like to welcome all of my esteemed colleagues and also dear students of this our department and also other departments here. So as uh, they say in Sudan uh, to greet, Habab Kam Asara. So like, uh, we welcome you ten times. It's very, uh, so it's nice of you, sir, to revisit Jamia Amelia Islamia. Uh, let me give you a brief introduction about uh, His Excellency Ambassador Hassan Al-Talib. He has uh, primary and intermediate education uh, in Sudan in Al- in Al-Hawatha, in higher secondary school in Halifa Al-Zadidu, Faculty of Economics and Social Studies with Economics as a major in the year 1979 from University of Khartoum in Sudan, Diploma in French, Faculty of Arts, University of Khartoum in 1994, Diploma on United Nations and UNESCO Studies 1996 from New Delhi, India, Institute of UN and UNESCO Studies, MA Economics previous 1997, Jamia Milia Islamia, New Delhi, India. Postgraduate Diploma in Development, Development Studies and Research Center, DSRC 2002, Faculty of Economics and Social Studies, University of Khartoum in Sudan, Certificate on Spanish from UNISA, South Africa 2005, MSc in Development Economics from 2007, University of Khartoum in Sudan, and PhD on Diplomatic Studies, The Impact of Partnership and Development, The Case of Sudan and Nepal, Sudan Academy of Sciences 2011. Dr. Al-Talib is proficient. He can read, write and speak four languages, Arabic, English, French and Spanish. He has got a lot of trainings and lot of published articles including in SSRC, uh, An Urgency for Peace and Darfur, uh, Peace Journal of Strategic Studies, paper on the Zanzawid in Inside ISA, he has a lot of professional experience, Consul General in the Republic of Sudan at Abeche in Republic of Chad in 93-95, Deputy Head of Mission Embassy of Sudan to Delhi from 95-97, to 97. Acting Director for the Department of Human Rights, Women and Children in Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Khartoum, Sudan 2000-2001, Deputy Head of Mission Embassy of Sudan, Pretoria, Republic of South Africa 2001-2005, Managing Editor for Journal of Strategic Studies in CSS in 2007, Senior Research Fellow at Center for Strategic Studies 2007 to 2008, Member of Higher National Council for Strategic Planning Sudan 2009, Permanent Representative of Sudan to EGAD 2009 to 11 and he has been Ambassador to the Republic of Sudan to Republic of Djibouti also and currently he is the Ambassador of Sudan to India. Before we begin and request uh, uh, Ambassador Al-Talib to deliver his formal lectures. Let me tell you uh, that in Department of Political Science, we have a very vibrant student community who are very much interested to know about Africa in general and also Sudan in particular. That is a sizable student community who are very much interested. We have a regular ongoing postgraduate courses we offer in Africa. Lot of our students, they really excel in African studies and they also pursue higher studies in MPhil and PhD on different aspects of African studies. India and Sudan, as far as the relationship is concerned, whatever little I know, we had a very growing relationship even before India became independent and even before Sudan became independent. In 1955 at the Bandung Conference, much before Sudan became independent, Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru was so fond of Sudan that he 
on a handkerchief, he put the name of Sudan at the Bandung summit and he welcomed Sudan. When Gandhi went to England for the first time, he also stopped in Port of Sudan for the first time and he had also a lot of interaction with the Indian community living in Sudan. Sudan is one of our active economic partners and also a strategic partners. Sudan and India relations have grown manifold in the last many, many years, maybe because of India's soft power capabilities and also Sudan is an attractive proposition for India in, as it forays into Africa. So I think there are a lot many more things that we can learn from Ambassador Talib. So let me welcome you once again, sir, to Jamia Mila Islamia to the Department of Political Science. Okay. I thank you very much, Professor Bidra Alam, and I thank the faculty and college and all these uh, young faces of the students who are the future of India. This is the real development when we have human resources development. I'm glad to be again in India and also in Jamia Media because uh, I was. Uh, 16 years before today, I used to be sitting in the Department of Economics and uh, have uh, friends like you sitting in the uh, MSCC uh, division where we uh, have many friends actually. And uh, I think this university is also have a very good uh, reputation outside. Uh, in Sudan we know this in addition to Aligar, Hamdar, and Osmania University, and now we have even in Hyderabad uh, many thousands of students. The total uh, number of students in uh, India from Sudan is, as we speak, around 8,000 uh, in different universities. Throughout the history of uh, independent Sudan, starting from 1956 until today, we used to have regular uh, students coming on private or in uh, scholarships. In scholarships, usually we have uh, uh, people in professional, uh, like uh, engineers, uh, technocrats, who used to upgrade their professional and academic affairs. But uh, generally speaking, we have a very good relations to India. Before we speak about the trends and the uh, future forward to relation, let me give a small uh, time on the history of Sudan. Sudan, as you know, in the northeast uh, African continent, bordering the, uh, from the east, the Red Sea, where we have a coastal line of more than 700 kilometers in the coast on the Red Sea. Then on the north, we are bordering Egypt, and in the northwest, it's Libya, in the west, is Chad, and uh, South Af uh, Central African Republic. In the South is the new uh, South Sudan Republic. As you know, uh, Sudan made a new uh, country created uh, to be called the Republic of South Sudan. This come as a history of civil war which continued since 1955. But after 50 years of war, uh, the government of Sudan and the rebel people uh, and because of the dragging on the economy and the social life and through participation from the African Union, the League of Arab States and other international uh, par partners, 
they agreed that Sudan uh, make a negotiable settlement for this conflict. So it happened that uh, the constitution of Sudan has the right to self-determination. It's become part of the constitution. So through that they agreed in 2005 with agreement that will give the exercise of self-determination to the people of, this, of South Sudan. If they accept as a majority that they will be a separate state, so they would no problem for that. If there is no consensus or no majority, then they will be part of this. And it happened that in 2011, uh, the majority agreed that to be a separate state, so they agreed. And now this is uh, become a secession through democratic ways, through the constitution of the Sudan. Because through war 50 years, we couldn't agree. And uh, we agreed that it will not be feasible for both states to be in a continuous war. Though they are one nation and they share their resources, yes, there is a different diversity. So from January 2011, uh, the new state of uh, South Sudan become a state in Southern Sudan and constitute the seventh state with Ethiopia and uh, Eritrea to be bordering Sudan. Yeah, now we have a very good relation with this state. We consider this to be a model for Africa and many other countries. As you know, in Spain now, uh, the Catalan region in Barcelona, they are still uh, looking to make referendum. Scotland is also looking. So I think the Sudan will lead a model not to be a conflicting model, but a kind of democratic model where the uh, separation not to be considered as creating new states, but as diffusion of the federal system or integral system. Because the African Union agreed that the no borders between states, this is the vision. So we consider uh, this contribution in Sudan will also help many African countries which have many conflicts inherited from the colonial system. Uh, this is uh, important to see that now we have two viable states living in Sudan and South Sudan. Two days ago, the president of South Sudan, Salvaqir Mayadeh, is received in Khartoum. We have shared petroleum uh, uh, resources, the petroleum in South Sudan and in North Sudan. But we started with South Sudan, where we uh, the production is around 250,000 now. This goes through pipelines to North Sudan, processing petroleum go to North Sudan and uh, engineers in Sudan and North India comes here as a partner in this petroleum. There is a company called ONGC, Oil and National Gas of India. Uh, this is started in early 2003 when uh, we have uh, an, a Canadian company working with a consortium from China from Malaysia and Sudan and, and the Canadian pulled due to political or uh, other reasons. And Sudan uh, government agreed that India come as a strategic partner. And this is why ONGC come. And now they are producing in both South Sudan and North Sudan. But traditionally, 75% of the total produced resource from petroleum is in the South Sudan, 25% in the North. 
now uh, the, uh, when the separation comes this impact our uh, resources negatively but uh, Sudan is not depending on petroleum alone we have a very uh, large population of livestock uh, up to 140 million heads of livestock including camel cattle sheep and goat Sudan is one of the largest areas with after separation now is the second country in Africa after DRC and probably the third after uh, in the Arab world uh, after Algeria and Saudi Arabia so uh, the area wise is more than one 1,900,000 square kilometers this is almost 57 percent of the total area of India if you take the population of Sudan, it is around 35 million. So you have 57% area where of India, but the population is only 35 million. Uh, it, it is a huge potential you use uh, to use resources. Sudan is also rich with groundwater and with river water. We have. River Nile with its two tributaries, the Blue Nile and the White Nile. The Blue Nile comes from Ethiopia, Lake Tana, and the White Nile comes from Lake Victoria, which is in the border between Tanzania, Uganda, Rwanda. It is called Lake Victoria, but of course, uh, this is come after the British colonization. Before that, it was called the greater lake and the Arab known this lake for centuries and they called it Al-Bahr Al-Kabir Al-Bahr Al-Kabir means the greater sea uh, but when the British came they gave it uh, Victoria because to their uh, queen that time now uh, Sudan of this large area depends on uh, cereals we grow sorghum uh, wheat uh, or all oil seeds including uh, sunflower seed sesame seed we have gum arabic the largest exporter of gum arabic worldwide 80 percent of gum arabic is uh, exported and sudan is the major producer gum arabic is used in uh, organic manufacture including oils uh, soft drinks beverages uh, lenses and uh, it is major uh, exporters is United States and India. In the mineral side, we in the last year Sudan uh, exporting up to 50 tons of gold. This is the total production, and this gold discovered only in the three four years before it was in the ground, but uh, because of the gap that happened in petroleum excavators went and found uh, this gold and now it is a very big business and uh, we are looking for many countries from India from China from uh, other countries which is now uh, utilizing also Sudan is rich of cobalt of chrome and iron ore and gypsum and all this are still in its very virgin and uh, early preliminary stages. We are looking forward for Indian technology to use this. When we talk to, uh, about India actually, 
as uh, Professor Badr Alam uh, says rightly, that our relation with India is in the independent Sudan, it is pre-independence uh, since 1955, the Bandung Conference. Uh, our uh, opposition leaders who look and may, uh, for uh, becoming uh, the leaders of independent Sudan try to fight the colonial government for a long time. Colonialism in Sudan started in 1899 when the British with the Egyptian. The British that time was colonized Egypt. So they make a coalition of Egyptian government which is itself under colonized in 1899 with the British army more than 13,000 British troops and invaded Sudan in, from Egypt and built a railway to take their tools and we have a government in place since national government 1885 and that government was uh, invaded as what we call today a regime change. This is the first regime change and in that war it is called Kerali, north of Khartoum. 24,000 soldiers were killed and massacred before the government collapsed and the British took that, that is under General Kitchener. But the background why British is there, because Sudan has one of the oldest African government, our first government is 1504, once uh, 16th century, 1504 until 1820. This is called the Blue Sultanate and this is the national government and their Islamic rule and constitutional, according to Sudanese, and they call it the Blue Sultanate in Arabic, Sultan al-Zarqa. And this ruled until the uh, Turkish invasion came from Egypt and invaded Sudan in 1820. As you know, the Turkish Empire used to be centralized in Istanbul. This is the capital of the Islamic Turkish Empire, which is uh, going as far as from Arabia and to west until Bosnia and Herzegovina where you hear and Kosovo and this area and Bulgaria all under the Red Sea and the Mediterranean and the Arabian Gulf including Al-Hijaz where Mecca and Medina are all under the uh, until 1918 after the collapse and the uh, invasion where Turkish uh, with Germany invaded and after that it became degrading. So this is the political modern history of Sudan. We inherited this. The British started in Sudan 57 years from 1899 until 1956. From 56 on Sudan became independent state. One of the major uh, countries that Sudan uh, has relation in Asia started with India. This is 1955 and uh, uh, Pandit Nehru received this Sudanese delegation 1955 and went with them to Bandung and this is before Sudan become independent. This is 1955 Bandung conference. So when we they went to the conference hall, the old delegation seat with their flags in front. Sudanese delegation is, have no flag because they are freedom fighters and uh, their country is still under colonization. So they argued about what uh, flag will be put to represent the Sudanese delegation. 
In this case, uh, Pandit Nehru took a white handkerchief and wrote with a red pen Sudan and put it, and this is considered as one of uh, recognition to Sudan before it's become independent. And for that reason, continuation of Indian relations started. The first embassy being built for Sudan, our side is the Sudan embassy in India in 1956, the same year of our independence. When we made our first consensus, this is population census, an Indian uh, expert was sent to head that uh, mission and also uh, this is considered and registered. Before that also we made the first election commission. It is also used to be headed by an Indian expert. Because we are coming from... So I think this is... From our perspective, now we have a trade uh, exchange between India around uh, $4 billion. The Indian uh, investment in Sudan is about $3 billion. A majority in oil, uh, as you know, ONGC, in pipelines, and we are looking now for refineries. Also, Indian machinery and expertise. We have many engineering in sugar. Sudan is one of the major sugar producing uh, countries, I think, with South Africa. We produce almost uh, more than uh, one million tons every year. But our requirements is more than that. We are still short 200,000 tons. Our consumption of sugar is one million 200,000 tons. We produce about one million. We have yet to compensate that last two weeks India extended line of credit to Sudan to build a new uh, factory of sugar called Mashkur. This uh, bilateral uh, relation in partnership and development is now run by the Department of Partnership Administration. It's a new body made by the government of India affiliated to the Ministry of External Affairs and headed by an uh, additional secretary where more than for 45 African countries used to partnership in development with India. This is a very good step because India has now a summit, India-Africa summit, where every two years, sometimes every three years, a summit will be held where the Prime Minister of India uh, and the invitation of heads of the state and government of African countries come to discuss what they can do in partnership. India used to be politically having the non-aligned movement, one of the major pillars with Yugoslavia and with Egypt. And this has made India exposed and known to the colonial Africa. Because when Africans were colonized, the colonization come from Western countries, whether Portugal or France or UK. And the Western countries considering freedom fighters as the troublemakers and maybe terrorists, as what happened to Mandela in South Africa. They call him a terrorist and all the ANC is terrorist. And this is a trend. Whenever you have a liberation movement, the government in place try to use uh, these words so that they can use it as a tool of war also. So India that time opened its arms and its training centers and its uh, practice to help these countries. Now India 
use this cloud and this soft power, many African countries look at India as a good example because we come from a background where we have the same problems. Diversity in religion, diversity in tribal uh, ethnic, we have diversity in languages. In Sudan alone we have more than 500 uh, dialects and tribes. But what constitute our uh, country before used to be religion because in South Sudan majority non-Muslims. North Sudan majority Muslim. Islam tried to go over the ethnicities and color. is a religion where is blind color. As you know in Islam, Prophet Muhammad beside him is Bilal. Bilal is an African and beside Bilal is Suhaib al-Rumi. He is a European. Rome from Roma or Rome, Romania. And then beside him Salman al-Farisi who is a Parsi from Iran and, and non-Arabic also. And this constitute the diversity that lived within the time of the Prophet living. The second thing we connotate also from uh, background in Islamic politics where we deal with West Asia. Now you have 22 countries in West Asia, the League of Arab States comprising almost about 400 million. And this also friendly countries to uh, India. I think West Asia is the more uh, adjacent region where India could put its international politics. Why that is so? Through the pre-Islamic era, Indians used to move through the Indian Ocean. And I think India should be happy to have one of its major uh, waterways in the world given this as the intellectual property of India. Nobody come to contest the name Indian Ocean. And for that reason, the Indians used to cross the Indian Ocean to go to Arabian Sea and to the Gulf countries and to the Red Sea. This is prehistory until today, where uh, before we have only these small primitive boats. So Indians used to be around in this coast and in the old Arabian uh, culture, Arabs known uh, the wars between themselves and that time the sword is one of the major tools you can win or lose a war. That Indian sword is called Muhannad, a safe and Muhannad, the Indian sword. It is also mentioned in the Arabic uh, poetry, the pre-Islamic poetry. When Prophet Muhammad was being uh, uh, praised by one of the poets, he called him, you are one of Indian swords. Because the Indian sword is most efficient that time, but the Prophet told him to say uh, a, a sword of Allah, uh, to replace a sword of India, because he believed that is more strong. So this is the background we have. I think India, through partnership with the West Asia, and through partnership with Africa, is now having a roadmap to emerge as a regional and global power. And this now we know, uh, Indian economy by GDP is uh, now uh, advancing to take Japan, United States, China, India in the volume of GDP. Then the new contest, India has a dividend of population. A country with 1 billion 200, you have the largest market with India in the area and this market 
is why India is now looked for by all the international uh, global economic powers. You know here, before we have David Cameron came here, uh, the uh, French uh, president came here, the Chinese always come here, the Australians, because of this market. So India can use this, but in order for India to produce for this market and people like you find job and even upheld their income and uh, erase poverty, they need also these resources, these resources in Africa. We have in Africa a very uh, tragic uh, history because of the exploitation. In South Africa, the annual production of gold is 500 million, 500 tons, sorry. This is South African annual gold production. They have cobalt, they have uranium, and they have other resources. But the division and distribution of income is unfair because Africa, South Africa was built on an apartheid system where the color of man is most important than his dignity as a human being. And this never turned until Mandela came in 1994 and become democracy. Now the major problem confronting South Africa is how to share the 9% of whites who take more than 90% of the total economy. And there are other 43 million black and Asian Africans who have nothing but to share this and now this is the challenge before South Africa. In our countries we don't have it because the companies make a kind of clients, local clients, and then the, the conflict between the center and margin. The center in London, in uh, Paris, in Geneva. But we are the margins and we only take raw materials like cotton, like soya bean, oil seeds, and things that may not make us any value added and been exported to Langshare, where there is textile in Old Britain. And then uh, this same textile, uh, cotton came to us in textile and turbans and clothes and we buy again. So we believe India can fill this margin because before we don't have any way to make value added from our industries. India is an industrial country, it can change this and this won't change it will meet our Millennium Development Goals, as you know, 2015, we are meeting this. In the health, India is also one of the major countries that produce producing medicine and also medical technology. And many Africans now, if you go to Apollo Hospital or 40th Hospital or all this in Chennai, big hospitals, you will find many Africans come for sophisticated surgery operations like transplant of uh, liver or heart, or kidney, and it is done with reasonable uh, price, affordable to many Africans, and this is new economy. I think some of you may study health economics. So this is the part of health economics where India can provide its soft power in medical technology, medical expertise, and also its uh, economic power in production of medicine. You know now the good thing that India government actually, when they, uh, this, uh, what we call life-saving medicine as a generic India has to use because its population will suffer if we have to buy medicine by $100 each month while our 
total income will not be more than 700 or 1,000. And we have a family to feed. So generic production of life-saving medicines using the Indian new law, I think also will be good for Africa because Africans also suffer from the The third part, I don't know what time do I have time. Okay, in five minutes we will conclude. I think the other part where Africa can learn from India is the political system of India. You cry here, of course, from uh, government and uh, you young people and we watch you when uh, things happen or everybody go to India gate and you have very good things you are doing and maybe you are not looking at it from the other side, the other dimension where Africans and countries in Africa look at India. We believe the Indian democracy is unique. This is the only democracy with this volume of population, more than 1,200 million, which live under non-European, non-white zone. Because from us, as a colonial people, we look at Britain and Westminster parliamentary democracy. Now India brought a democracy which could be uh, good for people with uh, poor uh, incomes who live in a very unique social, religious and uh, ethnic uh, dimensions, yet they have uh, prosperity and they have stability and they have multi-party system where you have no military coup. Problem of Africa is military coup. Because whenever we have a government, outside powers come, influence them by giving carrots or sticks. Carrot could be in donation. But major donation come to Africa, and there is a good book uh, written by one African author that consider uh, uh, development aid is an ailment because it corrupt people, it corrupt politicians, and it make dependency syndrome. People don't work. You get food, and you get uh, maize, and you get oil, so why you work? It is free. Uh, many countries put their flag, and but the people will not work because it is easy life. But the aid itself is corrupting politicians. The aid itself is creating a type of people coming from outside Africa who make aid as industry and a way to create job for them. Aid also become a problem and syndrome for uh, European countries and Western countries because they give subsidies to their farmers and then send the subsidy to African countries in aid or development uh, loans where the uh, debt syndrome comes again to Africa. So in all ways, so we believe the Indian experience could be good to take uh, how a poor country with different ethnicities can make a democracy that could be sustainable. I think the freedom of expression we see in India and the majority of uh, acceptance. You have a federal system where every state has its uh, chief minister, cabinet, and people have freedom of expression and multi-party system. This is a great value for India because the sustainability from 1947 until today, you have no military coup in India. This is a great success. The second thing, the Indian democracy is unique of is caring of the state for the poor. 
Now I read in the last uh, uh, bill which been uh, approved by the parliament that 800 poor uh, in, uh, people can get food and make sure that they are not going to get hungry. This is a great achievement. 800 million is the total population of Africa today. As we speak, the total is... If Africa make this and each African can go to his bed with, uh, with a stomach relatively full and not hungry, I think this will be considered a great success. So I think this contribution is also to be taken by African countries seriously because uh, we have countries with 10 million thousand and still have a problem while the land is there, the water is there. But the problem is how you can reform the political system, how you can reform the agrarian system, how you can reform the technology that can make people uh, masters in their destination and sovereign in their country and integral in their political decision. I think this is lessons could be learned from India and of course uh, the human resource. We have many African countries now uh, looking seriously to get their students to study in India because this human-centered development is what we call the Millennium Development Goals from poverty eradication, from health, from maternity, from uh, child care and to give the human being the dignity is deserved. So the mere unique capitalist state where the winner takes all and the loser goes with nothing will not help Africa and will not help India. What we need is a win-win partnership and I think this we are what we are looking for and we hope India will still take its place and uh, Sudan uh, look forward to be one of these partners and to share India its new emerging uh, takeoff and thank you very much. I would really like to thank uh, His Excellency Ambassador Al Talib uh, for a very uh, analytical, uh, conceptually sound, and very broad uh, canvas of India Sudan relations. He started out the historical contours of India Sudan relations from historical backgrounds and all the way to the present, and how it has uh, developed in all different spectrum in economics, in trade, in commerce, in education, uh, uh, in IT sectors, in capacity buildings and many other ways. I think there is a lot of uh, stimulus ideas that he just delivered. Hopefully we will carry some of these ideas to our classes when we pursue some of these things. Before we start the Q&A session, uh, let me request one of our students, Gaussia Salim, to offer a bouquet of flowers. The MSP is a very hectic and very busy schedule today. Also, shortly, he will also meet the Vice Chancellor of Jamia Mila Islamia, Professor Sajid, uh, to explore the possibility of hopefully some exchange programs of faculty and students between Sudan based top universities and also with Jamia Mila Islamia. But I think we do have some time, uh, so let us have some questions or any comments you would like to make or anything you would like to ask on Sudan or India Sudan relations on any aspects.
Thanks for this enlightening lecture, Chris. So, you esteemed have mentioned in your talk about the creation of a new state of Sudan, the seventh state. Uh, yeah. So, I wanted to know on what grounds this new state was created. As we talked that there is diversity in uh, ethnicity and uh, diversity in dialects in your country. So, was this new state created on these bases or something else? Okay. Uh, actually, this uh, South Sudan used to be uh, historically uh, a part where a uh, majority of uh, population living in that area are purely African. Uh, in North Sudan, uh, people mixed between Afro, Arab and various cultures. The major uh, difference is religion. North Sudan is 99%. Muslim. South Sudan, probably Islam 40%, Christianity 16 and the rest is African religion. And uh, the type of living is different in past, uh, pastoral, where they have cattle. But from uh, 1955, insurgency movement as a rebel group who always fight with the government and through different uh, stages the government tried to make uh, a kind of peaceful settlement, <coughs> the last one, 1972, at the regime of President Nimeri. But it lasts only 10 years because again 1983 insurgency came and it is uh, being fueled by Western countries, by some uh, church group, etc., etc., and become an issue which put Sudan from making any development. Yes, in South Sudan, they have the languages, uh, tribal system, uh, different religions, yet they try to be a part where they could be autonomy from the major Sudan because they believe that will serve them in division of power. I, I, from my own perspective, I think the major problem for Sudan is the central government. We used to have a central government inherited from the colonial system. So the peripheries, people in the rural areas, they don't have any touch with the government. Their uh, questions are not answered. Their requirements are not responded to. So this is one of the reasons that make the revolt. The second thing, we got plagued by military coup. In a span of uh, 40 years, we have more than four military coups. And, and the military coup, you know, military men come with guns and put everything in uh, jailed politicians, no freedom of expression, and he tried to lead people as a military regiment. And uh, usually people resent this, the good people and uh, intellectuals uh, flee the country or become uh, insurgency themselves, and this is also uh, impact. So I believe uh, South Sudan become now independent due to this reason. But becoming independent, there are obstacles. Uh, one of them, it is a landlocked. It has no any reach to the sea, only through North Sudan. The second thing, no infrastructure, no paved roads, no airports, no school, no because of the years of war. All the time people fighting, they have no time to build anything. And the small they build, it is destroyed. So now they agreed to come to a two viable state. Sudan could be uh, two viable states where there is a kind of a union, custom union or special status, so that uh, I think India has uh, this with Bhutan, 
Nepal and maybe Bangladesh. There is a kind of political agreement that people can live together and that is what is happening today. And I mentioned that uh, President of South Sudan, Salva Kiir, visited and agreed two days ago. And now the pipeline, all the production of oil comes through Sudan. All the processing of oil through Sudan. All the transit and uh, up to the ship. So, and the people live together. We have intermarriages between the system. So maybe after some time, it may happen to reach a kind of uh, consensus to become two uh, friendly states or reunite according to the German practice. But we are sure we are not like the North-South Korea. We have no wars between us. We have no weapons of mass destruction. And the system itself came as a win-win because it is came through referendum and not through war. So nobody can tell the other we uh, just uh, get this by war or through our uh, beating your army, so that animosity is not there. Thank you very much. Yes. Mm, let us take one on this side, yes. Please stand up and identify yourself. Yes. So my name is Karthari, I'm from the Department of Defense. The Republic of Sudan shares border with uh, Egypt on the northern side and on the northeast side of India. And as we know in the last three or four years, the situation in the neighborhood, uh, now in Egypt. So, my question is that how has that had an impact on India and Sudan relations, and particularly economic relations, and economics, particularly the investment, which you said is 3 billion, so there's a lot of opportunity. So, how has that had an important impact? Because security does impact the investment. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. I, I think the uh, uh, situation in Egypt, everybody here knows, and uh, Sudan has the largest border with Egypt. And uh, our situation is that we consider uh, Egypt as one of our uh, closest countries, which uh, have a population of 83 million. And uh, many Egyptians, we have an agreement, they can come easily and uh, sometimes without visa to Sudan and to invest and uh, move around and to own pro and all likewise Sudanese. So we believe if. Uh, disturbance come in Egypt, it will impact Sudan uh, negatively. But we try to uh, uh, leave what is politics to politics and try to concentrate for what impact of security on the national level will come. And we talk uh, friendly to our uh, uh, neighbors in Egypt to please come to amicable resolution of conflict because if this conflict extended to become a kind of bloody or rebel, that will be very hard for the area. And not only Sudan, uh, Libya is also bordering Egypt. Regarding the border with the Sudan and Libya, we used at the time of Colonel Gaddafi, unfortunately, we have problem in Darfur region of Sudan. It's a wide desert of nomad, where the uh, arms come from Libya and uh, through Gaddafi regime for this rebel. After the re uh, new government in Libya, this being stopped and there is a security uh, arrangement between the two countries to uh, look at, uh, and oversee the illicit uh, trafficking of arms. Because these arms come from depots in the desert at the time of old regime. And certain people used to 
trafficking on them and to send them to different areas, including Sudan and its neighbors. Now this has been stopped. Also, the Republic of Chad is having border with Libya. But as part of Indian uh, influence, this will not impact because the Indian oil coming from South Sudan and the pipeline from South to East and this uh, problem in North West. So it will not impact. Uh, India is friendly to all these countries and we are looking forward even India to take Port Sudan as its Eastern gate to the uh, Arabian Sea and the Indian Ocean so that uh, the depots for Indian in, uh, warehouses be there and we have uh, road line and, uh, and, 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 and railways that can take it. So uh, it is minimal. Can we take on one on this side? Uh, yeah. Uh, my, my, uh, I'm pursuing my certificate in fact. So my question is, uh, India's import from Sudan in 2011 was 438.18 USD million. And it has gone down to 133.34 uh, USD million. So it's a noticeable response was 69.5%. So how do you see this trade to Sudan and India's Bangladesh? Okay, this is a very good question. Actually, uh, the figures you see here and been uh, put by the Statistics Department of uh, India and the trade. Sudan and India have no banking system. This is one problem. No branch of any Indian bank in Sudan. And likewise, no Sudanese bank in India. And this is one of uh, very strange things, because we have relation for a long time, but our banking system couldn't talk together. So Sudanese uh, importers from India, when they want to send money, they go to London and let the money come from London to India. So it is registered as coming from UK, not from Sudan. Likewise, it comes from Dubai, because may, many of our companies have uh, branches in Dubai, including uh, banks in Dubai and India. So that is why it is not reflected in the and the small amount that comes uh, by merchants uh, who have very limited uh, narrow links that come which is reflected. We actually uh, draw the attention of this to the RBI uh, Reserve Bank of India and to the uh, Ministry of Trade and they are looking forward to talk to some bank like Baruda Bank, I think, to open a branch. If that comes, it's reflected because we know now India has three million dollars invested in Sudan. And more than that, there are com uh, companies like Mahindra, Solonica, Cosmos, uh, BHEL, and, and uh, many sugar uh, factories have plant in Sudan. And now this year we have more than 500 million dollars between on loans between Sudan and India. But unfortunately, this is one major thing we would like uh, India to look into seriously so that it will reflect the true uh, state of uh, bilateral trade. But what you see is this is come directly from Sudan, but it is not reflecting the money coming from other countries. Yes, you are right. We are looking forward to solve this. Okay, yeah, on the back. Sir, 
Of course, uh, as you know, Syria is a member of uh, League of Arab State Country, and Sudan has uh, relation historically with this area and all Arab countries. So our statement um, uh, made by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is that we condemn the chemical use against civilians from whatever party comes, if government or opposition, because it is still under investigation who use this. The second thing, Sudan is against any military intervention in Syria or in any other countries. We believe countries have sovereign uh, identity, have uh, political integrity, and especially these countries which are members to the United Nations. Having said that, we're looking forward to see a political resolution, the government and the opposition to sit together through mediation the League of Arab States, the United Nations, or any other regional body to stay. But we believe from the experience in Iraq and Afghanistan, military intervention will not be good for Syrians, not good for the government or opposition, and not good for the region. And also, we are not sure if this uh, military intervention happens, what limits for that will be. Will it be stopping only in Syria? Will it be go, maybe Iran? will interfere, maybe Russia will interfere, and who will be the culprit and who will be the victim. Uh, so uh, military intervention per se, and also whether the United Nations is giving uh, any resolution or this will be unilaterally. We are member state to the United Nations. We believe the charter is still intact and we want to see a clear resolution from a body like the United Nations to Mexico. But having said that, we are still uh, keen to see a political resolution of this conflict. Uh, thank you. Yes? So as you said uh, in your talk that uh, there was a, a difference between religion in North Sudan, not in South Sudan. So was there any other entity who forced the separation of North South Sudan, outside entity, besides religion? So besides religion, yes, was yes. there any other entity who forced uh, the creation of uh, North South Sudan? No, no, no. I think uh, religion is uh, imposed by the SPLM as a tool of negotiation. Because in South Sudan, in the same family, you you find a Christian, you find a Muslim, and intermarriages between these people. So they, there is nothing to say there is a religious war. Has never been, and never, and the mosque and the church is already there until today. So, but the religion came from the propaganda of the rebel group to draw the Christian world to support their cause. And that unfortunately happened because many uh, fanatic reverence in America and other try to pile uh, allegations and uh, bad words against Sudan and, and has never been true. The major thing we believe is the unbalanced development. This is the major <coughs> cause for the world because it is clearly from the time, 57 years of colonial rule, they have not, they didn't make any significant development in the south, no railway, no paved roads, no universities, no uh, health care, 
even education and even you see naked people going in the forest because the, the, the colonial make reserve area you cannot cross from north to visit the south until you get a permit like a visa and, so, and this continued for the last 50 years and these people as becoming human reserve like uh, Aboriginal maybe in Australia where uh, or the Amazon forest where pe uh, it is closed and then for that reason people couldn't develop and for that reason the rebel group came and take this as their cause to make people around them to find a resolution. The second thing as I said the military coup took it only as a firepower to solve the question and of course power will not make any resolution it make more uh, problems because the other party took arms so we become government and rebel group and, and that's what happened. I guess we can take just one more question, yeah, in the back. So you talked about the current Indian investments in Sudan and the trade partnership which is valued at 3 billion. But India's neighbor with whom we have conflicting interest, China is having more investments than India in this African continent. So particularly, do you think that this Indian and Chinese investment in the near future is going to change the geopolitical equation and will lead to something like localization of a conflict when it comes to these foreign investments? I think yes, uh, the reason is the Chinese, of course, paradigm of development and what we call now state capitalism. This is a new uh, jargon in economics because we know capitalist, we know mixed economy and we know Marxist. The Marxist economy collapsed by the demise of the Soviet Union in 1991. Nobody is talking about it. Even people in Cuba and North Korea is changing that. And, in, and China is become state capitalism. Now the paradigm we see in the West is everybody knows exploitative capitalism where the major objective of the capitalist is to maximize profit. Apart from that he has no uh, care for social responsibility, nothing. And this happened in Nigeria and other countries where people made a common uh, cause against Shell Company because of the uh, impact it made on the environment. In India, I think you have a union carbide problem uh, because the, the social responsibility is not very clear in the old capitalism. The new paradigm which India and China is coming is building roads, uh, building clinics, uh, giving scholarship and easy uh, loans in a partnership between the country that hosts the project and the financer who bring the money or the expertise. So I think this is the paradigm which now India is leading and I think it is the one which is suitable for Africa and probably for the 21st century. This is a partnership, win-win uh, relationship, not a winner takes all, loser goes with nothing, and the loser always used to be, in the past century, these uh, poor countries, emerging countries, developing countries. So I think the Indian uh, type of partnership and development. The second thing, India is giving loans up to 20 years with the rate of interest of less than uh, 2 or 3 percent. In the World Bank, they give more than that, and the capitalist countries give the market rate of their stock exchange. And then uh, the uh, India is uh, trying to help this 
to promote its market because 70% of the total loan is to be bought from Indian manufacturing. So this also promote Indian manufacturer and give expertise to Indian engineers and designers to know the new markets. And this is how you open the markets. In the old days, markets were opened by military force. The British brought military, the Portuguese brought, the Spanish in South America, and everybody is uh, putting his arms, then take the whole state, the new system, is to get partnership, talk to the state, make the private sector, business council, and win-win approach, and this is sustainable. So we believe, yes, uh, China and India paradigm will be good for Africa and many developing countries, and I think uh, from the collapse of the financial system in the West, uh, we now know that the old system uh, should be revised, and even the goals of this uh, uh, capitalist countries now talk about whether this system will sustain the coming 20 or 30 years and many people are uh, speaking now 2030 China will be uh, number one but the Chinese is not a capitalist system so, so that is why we need the students of political economy and politics to look into this new paradigm this is a new era completely different from the old era where we use typewriter now we use uh, uh, G4 and we use uh, uh, the latest computer <coughs> system. So you need a new environment, you need new tools, you need new concepts. The old concept is no more working, especially in Africa and developing countries. Nobody will accept today that one uh, man come only with his capital and take everything under his uh, pocket and even the government in the West is influenced by the capitalism. And this is I mentioned the Indian uh, experience is different. Now, if you want to put yourself as candidate in any Western countries, you have to have how many billion dollars? Last time, President Obama, when he came to election, he needed two billion dollars. From where you get two billion? You will not get from the poor. The company and the rich people. When the company and rich people bring a president, then they can put their tune. He who pays the fiddler, Make the tune, right? The fiddler is there, you give him the money. The tune you need, and this is it, they call for president. If I give a president money to become successful, and the rule is open for me, then I can make sure the president will not take any rule that will harm my business. And this is the Western capitalism. The new capitalism in China, or the new uh, paradigm, of development and political science in China and India should take a different course and to be sustainable. Otherwise, it will find the same uh, collapse that is now we are watching. Thank you very much.